I just wish that Pop was here right now so that he could see this good crop that we finally got. Hey, look at them beans. And look at that boy. And I bet them watermelons must be You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. The FBI appears to have known a lot more about the 1969 assassination of Chicago Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and fellow member Mark Clark than court documents and trials and history would have us believe. It turns out that other than planning the raid that led to Fred Hampton's killing, getting the Cook County State's Attorney to agree to the plan, and the State's Attorney then ordering the Chicago Police Department to implement the raid that led to the killing of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, other than all that, the FBI was far more involved in the assassination. According to newly released documents... For months leading up to the killing and then over a year after the assassination, the FBI assisted in the design and then the cover-up of what is apparently a planned murder of the leader of a political organization simply because it and he were fighting for black liberation. Yes, the same FBI who many on the left at this very moment are applauding or even assisting in their rounding up of suspects in the U.S. Capitol siege. That same FBI finally released documents that show they were far more involved in the murders of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark than previously known. Of course, they were forced to release those documents through a Freedom of Information Act request. So be very careful with what you wish for, because an emboldened FBI with expanded powers to keep a close political eye on political movements, a close eye on political movements, usually does not end well for the left. In a few, we will speak with attorneys Flint Taylor and Jeff Haas, co-authors of the Truth Out story. New documents suggest J. Edgar Hoover was involved in Fred Hampton's murder. They also have an editorial at the Chicago Sun-Times. With the headline, The Killing of Two Black Panthers, The Secrets of the FBI and Our Nation's Long Fight for Police Reform. That's actually a Chicago Chicago Sun-Times editorial board editorial. There you go. Flynn is a founding member of the People's Law Office in Chicago. He was together with Jeff. Uh, Jeff Haas, a lead lawyer in the landmark Fred Hampton and Mark Clark civil rights case. Flint has represented numerous police torture survivors during the past 33 years. He is one of the lawyers involved in the struggle for reparations and has chronicled the decades-long fight against Chicago police violence and torture in the book The Torture Machine, which was named one of our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. Jeff is a founding partner of the People's Law Office and was one of the main lawyers for the 17 Pontiac brothers, wrongfully charged but acquitted in the Capitol murder trial for the Pontiac Prison Rebellion in 1978. Jeff also worked with other People's Law Office lawyers uh, representing the victims of Chicago Police Department torture, John Burge. Most recently, Jeff provided legal support and represented water protectors at Standing Rock. He is a board member of the Water Protector Legal Collective, as well as of the Adala Justice Project. Jeff is the author of The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. You can find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing Monday's show. Today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I watched every Bernie Mac stand-up video on YouTube and made a top-tier cauliflower gratin. So uh, I'm riding high, baby. (laughs) That does sound like a pretty good weekend. Far better than mine. My weekend was awful. The plan was to go shopping and get a new, uh, better office chair so my back wouldn't be in such horrible shape because sitting in an antique wooden chair is really doing a number on my spine. And I've been missing some shows because of back spasms. And I'm pretty sure it's because the chair I sit in at home is over 100 years old. But my girlfriend's job has now become seven days a week, so we never had time to get outside of the house, none of which seemed to have any importance when we got the horrible news that a very, very close and dear friend passed away. And if you all don't mind, I'm going to be a bit self-indulgent today. But for now, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners, Alex? 
Uh, I will announce it at the end of the show because I posted one and it's not funny, so I got to think of another one. <laughs> All right. So the, I usually don't let them not being funny stop me, uh, but I got to get a better one. So I'll have one up at the end of the show. So this week's question from Hell will be announced later on on this morning's show. The person with our favorite answer again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell once Alex announces it later on in this morning's show. At our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing the winner, as we do each and every week. Alex will have the, an- the question from hell following our guest. Thanks to everybody who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the weekend. If you go to thisishell.com and click on support, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell, including how to get any and all of our This Is Hell merchandise. Thanks to all of you for your incredible support. Again, if it were not for you, This Is Hell would not exist. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure, a hangover cure that I really enjoy. Uh, this week's Hangover Cure is denial. <laughs> Earlier this month, The Guardian ran the article, Reader's Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar. In it, they quote Matt Cavers, a cider drinker and copywriter in British Columbia, Canada, who says that when it comes to their cure, I find the thing that works best is denial. Your body is like, or so your hangover is like a bully. It thrives on your attention. So if you ignore it completely, it will eventually stop bothering you. <laughs> I don't really think that's how a bully works, but okay. <laughs> Wake up at a normal time, take a shower, try cold water, have a coffee and a healthy breakfast, leave the house and do something virtuous outdoors. Never, not once, not to yourself or anyone else, admit how utterly horrible you feel inside. And that's good advice for <laughs> manhood. If you're lucky, your hangover will uh, leave you alone before the day is done. And if not, at least you can feel smug about how much you got done despite it. So that makes this week's hangover cure denial. So are all climate change denialists? Do you think that they're just uh, having a horrible hangover? Is <laughs> what leads them to it? Or people who are anti-vaxxers or believe that the pandemic is a hoax? I'm pretty sure they're just suffering from a hangover. <laughs> just deep in denial about that hangover. On our very first show of this year, we explained how the show is not about me and why you should not trust any show that has the host's name in the title. And shows without guests, or their only guests being other podcasters, definitely ignore those shows. But, with my apologies, please allow me to be a bit self-indulgent just for a moment. Last October, we found out that a very dear, close, and personal friend had gone into hospice, hospice, which, unbeknownst to me, and apparently I cannot pronounce, usually means they're going home to be with loved ones as they await inevitable death. That inevitability, inevitability happened this weekend, and my girlfriend and I, and apparently hundreds of people across the United States, are in very deep mourning. Uh, I've been trying to think why she touched so many lives, what she taught me, and what can be learned from her. And I kept coming back to the same thing, her amazing ability to support everyone with whatever they were doing, going through, whatever it was. She was an anchor of support. When I first met her, on the sidewalk, mind you, a woman pushing a baby in a stroller makes friends with a stoned freak who's... Hair had not been cut for eight years, who's wearing mirrored sun- sunglasses, aviator sunglasses. I look like a homicidal maniac. I mean, who does that? When I first met her, this radio show had just started, and she was incredibly supportive, listening and telling me every week how she liked the show, and later explained to me that she talked to me on the street because she mistook me for a neighborhood cross-dresser. When I was being interviewed by Pacifica Radio about doing a daily morning show in Los Angeles, she was more excited about the opportunity than I was, which probably explains why I did not get that gig. She supported everybody. Jeff Dorchin, who does The Moment of Truth, told my girlie yesterday, and something I had no idea, that when he was having a real tough time, it was our friend who helped him through his darkest time. I had no idea. Not somebody who was in the same circle of friends. This is just a friend of a friend of a friend. 
Whether you were an artist or a musician or an activist or whatever you did or whoever you are, she was always there to show how much she loved and believed in everybody. I was going to share uh, one incredible story about her life followed by another. I was going to tell you about all the hilarious joy she gave me, but instead this morning, while in the shower, I realized that the most important thing I can tell you about my sister by a different mister is that her unblinking support for all those around her had an indelible effect on hundreds and hundreds of lives here in Chicago, back in her hometown of Cleveland, and across the country, as I got calls from friends on both coasts over the weekend sharing in our grief. I don't know of anyone who loved and was loved as much as she was and is, and all that left, all that love was expressed in her incredible support and belief in others. She'll truly be missed by all, and I'll do everything I can to continue her legacy of supporting others. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com. What did I just say? I just read that completely wrong. Putting people before profits since 1996. I think I've been reading that wrong for a couple of weeks because it's here in the script. Putting people before profits since 1996. This is Helen. If you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out our front, your friends here at Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell. One way you can contribute to This Is Hell is to become a subscriber to This Is Hell's Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. Sign up and you'll get immediate access to over 150 past Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, which like all of our past Patreon podcasts is available right now, we shared an interview we did nearly 15 years ago to the day as a reminder of just how awful, how criminal the administration of President George W. Bush really was. You know, the administration headed by a president who lied us into a war, instituted a global torture program that included a worldwide network of secret prisons to commit that torture, yet somehow currently has an approval rating around 60% amongst members of the Democratic Party. Yeah, that President Bush. So we shared our January 2006 interview with the Center for Constitutional Rights, Barbara Olshansky, who wasn't working on any of those, uh, was, who was working on all those crimes by the administration. Uh, Barbara was filing lawsuits against President Bush and all of his highest ranking intelligence officials for putting in place a surveillance system that allowed them to unlawfully listen into anyone's and everyone's conversation in the United States. Barbara was also working on closing Guantanamo. So yeah, George W. Bush was worse than Donald Trump as president. At least Trump didn't lie us into a war that continues to this day, didn't come up with a secret global torture program, listen in on everyone's phone calls and create an extrajudicial prison prison outside of the United States, an extrajudicial prison system outside of the United States. Meanwhile, I tried to wrap my head around what exactly we learned on the show last week, which is something I I will be doing a lot more this year, trying to figure out exactly what the hell happened on the show uh, each week. In fact, on last Tuesday's show, we discussed the similarities between Germany's anti-lockdown protests and those that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which is actually the topic of a front page article in today's New York Times. So if you want to know what's going to be in the Times... Just listen to our show a week earlier. A week later, you'll have that on the front page of the New York Times. But you can only hear a reminder of how President Bush was worse than President Trump. In my review of last week's shows, including the links between protest movements in the U.S. and Germany, how the law is the crime and why we need an anti-fascist movement now more than ever by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You are here, and this is Hell. Coming up, new revelations in the 1969 killings of Fred Hampton. I, there it is. Uh, also, we'll have the rotten, we'll have rotten history and tell you what's happening the rest of this week here on This Is Hell. This is not the media. This is hell. 51 years ago, this past December, Chicago Black Panther leader Fred Hampton and fellow member Mark Clark were killed in a barrage of gunfire from members of the Chicago Police Department. The deadly assault silenced a leading voice for black liberation and the leader of a black political organization fighting for the rights they had been promised by the founding documents of the United States, but were never given. 
Here to tell us what happened then and what newly released documents reveal, attorneys Flint Taylor and Jeff Haas are co-authors of The Truth Out Story. New documents suggest J. Edgar Hoover was involved in Fred Hampton's murder. First, how are you doing this morning, Flint? Quite well, Chuck. Good to be with you again. Great to hear your voice, sir, and welcome to This Is Hell, Jeff. Thank you, Chuck. Nice to be here. Flint and Jeff are uh, also, uh, we're, there's an editorial in the Chicago Sun-Times today with the headline, The Killing of Two Black Panthers, The Secrets of the FBI, and Our Nation's Long Fight for Police Reform, reform Related to the Revelations that we'll be discussing with Flint and Jeff. Flint is a founding member of the People's Law Office in Chicago. Jeff is a founding partner of the People's Law Office as well. Flint is the author of The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, which was named one of our very favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. And Jeff is the author of The Assassination of Fred Hamm how the FBI and the Chicago police murdered a Black Panther. You can find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. Before we start, Jeff, I have to tell you a story about your book. At our last anniversary listener appreciation party, I introduced Flint to a friend who grew up down the street from Fred Hampton when Fred and Mark were assassinated. He was telling Flint about how the cops would watch Fred's house and how after the killing... As kids, they would go play in what they called the murder house. As Fabian was telling Flint and I his stories, a listener walks up to us, said that he had just met you, you'd been speaking about Fred Hampton somewhere, and he handed me an autographed copy of your book, and Fabian thought the whole thing was a stage setup. He thought for sure that this guy, I'd set up this whole con just to freak out uh, Fabian. So uh, welcome to This Is Hell, Jeff. Uh, But before we get to the release documents and what we have learned recently, you two set the stage writing in March 1976. We sat in a cavernous Chicago courtroom while FBI agent Roy Martin Mitchell testified in the federal civil rights case that we and our partners at the People's Law Office had brought on behalf of the families of slain Illinois Black Panther leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and the seven survivors of the murderous pre-dawn Chicago police raid on their West Side apartment. To give people context, Jeff, why target Fred Hampton? What was he doing that would make him a target for the FBI so people can understand why he was targeted? I think Fred uh, engendered just so many qualities of a leader. He was a fantastic speaker. He also, whatever he asked other people to do, he was willing to do. Uh, if he if he said show up at the breakfast program at six or make breakfast or play with the kids or serve it, he would be there. If he said sell your quarter of papers, he would be there. Fred also groomed himself to speak. He listened to his own minister in church. He memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X so that when he spoke, he had a tremendous impact on people uh, as people who had probably seen uh, videos of him speaking. So Fred just had, he also had a tremendous magnetism about him and energy. And when you'd see him with other people, he would give people energy and they would kind of work off of his energy and his righteousness. Another just very simple quality, his dad told me once, Fred just couldn't accept injustice anywhere, whether it was not allowing uh, black girls to be homecoming queens or not enough black teachers at Proviso East High School, or there wasn't a swimming pool for black kids. These were issues that Fred raised and raised in a a strong and powerful way. Um, The other thing was Fred had the ability to reach so many different kinds of people. He could reach welfare mothers. He could reach gang members. He could reach young college students. He also had the ability to reach out to the Puerto Ricans in the Young Lords Organization and young white Appalachians in the Young Patriots so that he created this rainbow coalition. So he was somebody who was really bringing together a lot of people. And the FBI's program prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. And that's what Fred did. If you heard Fred speak, if you saw what he did, uh, you were inspired. And I think he inspired both Flint and I. We heard that great speech he made when he came out of jail in 1969. So I think he was his biggest threat, mostly with his mouth and with his ability to organize and also just his righteousness. 
And Flint, you and Jeff write of the case in that March 1976 courtroom, thanks to the liberation of FBI documents from the media Pennsylvania FBI offices, the revelations of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Activities, and our own hotly contested pretrial battles to uncover the truth about the raid. We had been able to document the local FBI's central role in setting up the raid as part of the Bureau's secret and highly illegal Co-Intel Pro program. This program had previously targeted black liberation leaders, including Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, Elijah Muhammad, and the organizations that they led. As the Senate Select Committee would later find in its April 1976 report, the FBI had more recently turned its attention to, quote, destroying the Black Panther Party. Flint, is that the stated mission of the FBI to destroy any political movement it deems a threat to the United States? Is that why we have the FBI? Is that in their mission statement? Well, if we look at the documents that Hoover and his uh, second and third in command, William Sullivan and George Moore, generated in 1967 and 1968, uh, Jeff touched on them. Uh, They talked about neutralizing and disrupting these organizations, the Black Liberation Movement organizations and their leadership. And then the next year, just before Dr. King was assassinated, they issued an even more explicit document that talked about preventing the rise of a messiah who would electrify and unify the Black, what they called the Black Nationalist or Black black Nationalist Movement. Uh, So that was the predicate. They used terms like the CIA used when the CIA said neutralize They meant destroy, they meant murder, they meant assassinate. And what we found in the the use of the word destroy in our article is in quotes because as after Watergate, uh, the Senate Select Committee under uh, Senator Church, Frank Church, did a a uh, widespread investigation uh, of uh, surveillance and and, uh, disruption by the FBI. And they're the ones who found that the raid was part of COINTELPRO and that the, uh, or the, the FBI had set about to, quote, destroy, end quote, the Black Panther Party. So yes, COINTELPRO went far beyond any uh, idea of crime fighting, which is the, uh, the uh, kind of uh, image that they have projected and continue to project with this new uh, TV show that I see advertised uh, um, on TV Uh, and uh, far beyond just surveillance, but to neutralize and destroy organizations. And particularly in the 60s, it was by violence. It was the raid, uh, the the murders and assassinations were the culmination of these pro- the, these projects, and particularly the, the COINTELPRO project. And when we look at what the FBI is about today, uh, we have to look in terms of history and compare what they do today uh, with what they uh, have done in the past, starting with the founding of the FBI in the early 20s under J. Edgar Hoover. So, Jeff, just as a follow-up on that, how difficult would it be to reform the FBI to have it go back to being the law enforcement agency it's supposed to be and not the intelligence gathering agency, not the CIA that's targeted at the citizens of the United States? I think it would be very difficult because I think their their mission uh, is to undermine movements which they think are threats to the United States. And certainly when Hoover was there, any black movement he considered to be a threat. When they talk about disrupt, destroy, and neutralize black nationalist movements, we asked them, what's a black nationalist movement? And they said, well, it's a black organization that has a national headquarters. So that's a pretty broad definition. Now, obviously, if you get uh, people that maybe don't have quite the racial bias and right-wing tendencies that Hoover had, uh, they might be slightly less aggressive, but we don't, I don't think that's likely. Uh, and so even today, we know that there's a great deal of surveillance of the Black, uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, and uh, new, new terminology, uh, Black identity extremists, they call them, uh, sort of in, in, as, as a way to target them. So I don't think it's likely. Uh, I think 
if the public, I think the church committee set them back a little bit. They put restrictions on the CIA and FBI in the aftermath of Watergate and the disclosures of the church committee. Um, and it's interesting that today uh, they seem to be, have been tone deaf about the right wing of fascist movement that was growing everywhere that they admitted was a, the biggest threat, but they didn't exactly do anything or stop what we saw on January 6th. Uh, is that because they have within the organization friends of these fascist movements? So it, it would be a long way before I would trust the FBI uh, not to do what it has traditionally done. Flint, you and Jeff write that at the time in 1976 in the courtroom, you write how Roy Martin Mitchell was an integral member of the Chicago FBI office's racial matters squad and the control agent for a prized asset, informant provocateur William O'Neill, who was the captain of security of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. As such, O'Neill had ready access to the local Black Panther Party chairman, the dynamic Fred Hampton, who had garnered particular attention from Mitchell, his racial matters squad and the co-intel pro program so describe you describe o'neill as an informant provocateur as captain of security for the black panther party how much violence could be attributed to o'neill to what extent was the fbi con- contributing to the perception and belief that the black panther party was indeed a threat well definitely o'neill was a provocateur and and when jeff and i tried the the case in the, in the 70s We were able to put on other witnesses uh, who were Panthers who uh, worked with O'Neill in kind of their own little unit. And uh, uh, they were always trying to provoke uh, violence and they were they were into armed robberies and that kind of thing. And they and O'Neill constructed an electric chair, which he said would would uh, ferret out informants, quite ironically, in the Panthers. Uh, And of course, Hampton uh, uh, shut that down as soon as he heard about it. But O'Neill was kind of, uh, I shouldn't say kind of, but was running uh, his own um, uh, little uh, um, operation within the Panthers uh, to perpetrate violence and to also kind of mischaracterize what the Panthers were about. Um, And this is not unlike what we see with with other informant provocateurs from the FBI and of course the police as well. Uh, Another uh, example uh, of a provocateur that we learned about in Greensboro, North Carolina, who led the uh, massacre of five uh, um, uh, anti-Klan demonstrators in Greensboro in 1979 was in fact an FBI informant provocateur himself. Uh, and we we found in history that in the South, uh, in the 60s, that about a quarter of the members of the Klan uh, were FBI informants. So when Jeff mentions the Capitol and really uh, what investigations may show, uh, probably will show about uh, the nature of who those folks were uh, and what they were about uh, when, when they assaulted the Capitol, I think we're going to find that, that, that we had FBI informants, uh, we had other police informants, uh, if not just involved, but perhaps even leading uh, the assault uh, as they were in, um, in Greensboro. And of course, the key role that, that O'Neill played in setting up uh, the raid on, on Fred Hampton and Mark Clark's apartment in December of 1969. And Jeff, you and Flint Point uh, remind us about the 14 raiding cops who fired more than 90 bullets from a machine gun into the home of Fred Hampton. A rifle, shotguns, handguns, uh, all shooting while the sleeping Panthers uh, were laying there completely, <laughs> completely asleep. Um, they were essentially assass- assassinated in their beds. Jeff, do you know to what extent that raid was conducted in accordance with the FBI plan? Were there mistakes made or was this horrific killing, were these horrific killings, were they done by design or was this some sort of miscommunication in any way? Could the FBI claim that it was poorly executed by the Chicago Police Department? 
Well, perhaps they could, but we have internal documents in which they repeatedly referred to the raid as a success, as carrying out our mission. So it may not be true that it, the FBI may not have orchestrated who would go in and who would fi- who would assassinate Fred in his bed and who would go in with a machine gun and fire shots through the wall at three people who were sleeping in the middle bedroom. What the FBI knew at the time was that Hanrahan was a very ambitious prosecutor, the heir apparent to Daly. He had declared the Panthers a gang. He had declared at one point that gangs were nothing more than animals. So that's who they gave this information to. Here's a floor plan of the apartment. Here's where O'Neill has identified Fred and Deborah, where they would be sleeping. Um, and we are, and here's the, here's the, there's weapons in there that may or may not be legal. So you give, it's sort of like you light a match and you give it to the person and who's politically ambitious, who wants to get credit for this raid. And then, you know, I don't know whether it's a wink or a nod or more direction, but you've certainly got the FBI uh, setting it up, rewarding. Now we learn not only the informant who set it up, but the agent who set it up, Roy Mitchell, we learned for the first time in these documents, 51 years later, gets a bonus also. And he gets repeated reports about how invaluable his work has been to the mission of the FBI. So if there was doubt, uh, if, if they didn't plan every minute, they definitely set it up. They rewarded the people who did it. Uh, and they were pr- very proud of what happened. So uh, I think that that's about as much as, as you can know. Uh, but I definitely think they're complicit, both in the planning, the execution, and the cover-up of the raid. So, uh, Flint, you and Jeff Wright, so it was in March 1976 when the FBI's Mitchell set about to uh, meticulously slander Hampton and the Black Panther Party through the reports of his informant, O'Neill. How misleading were the reports from O'Neill? And was O'Neill simply saying what Mitchell wanted to hear? Jeff was just talking about the award that they received. Were they being incentivized to give misleading information about the Black Panther Party. I think that O'Neill was definitely telling Mitchell what Mitchell wanted to hear, and and Mitchell wanted to hear what Hoover and um, Moore and and William Sullivan wanted to hear because they wanted to justify the programs that they were running, and particularly they wanted to justify the COINTELPRO program uh, that was uh, so violent in, in the late 60s and so focused on the Black Panther Party. So, so yes, O'Neill was giving Mitchell what he wanted from uh, false and misleading uh, reports to a floor plan of the apartment where Fred Hampton uh, would be sleeping, marking the bed where he would be sleeping, uh, and giving all the information that was passed on, as Jeff mentioned, to Hanrahan, who in turn had his own little police force. Hanrahan had 14 Chicago police officers assigned to him personally. And those were the 14 Chicago police officers who went on this raid and who brought the machine gun and who came at 4.30 in the morning. So yes, maybe the details of the raid itself were not planned by the FBI, but as Jeff says, they took credit for it. And we, during the trial, we got one COINTELPRO document dated the day before the raid. And the, the, the document before the raid on December 3rd predicted the raid and said that it was part of the COINTELPRO program. So any doubts about what they wanted to take credit for uh, were totally exploded by this document, which the judge in our case and the government lawyers attempted to keep from us and did keep from us for years until we were able to pry that loose with the help of the uh, Senate uh, Church Committee uh, during our trial. So O'Neill was uh, very much beholden to the FBI uh, because he was uh, recruited uh, in lieu of being sent to the penitentiary. Um, But it was a shared intent uh, that O'Neill shared with Mitchell and Mitchell shared with the head of the FBI in Chicago, uh, Marlon Johnson, and Johnson shared with the head of intelligence and counterintelligence in Washington, Sullivan and Moore, and Sullivan and Moore in turn shared with Hoover. So that was the chain 
Uh, and that was uh, a chain that we believed in uh, and attempted to show in our trial. But until these documents were gotten by uh, F Freedom of Information Act uh, by a man by the name of Aaron Le Leonard, we didn't have that final link. You mention a couple of conspiracies that happened. You write, the court held in no uncertain terms that we had amassed a powerful record of two successive police prosecutorial and FBI conspiracies. The first conspiracy, which was grounded in the COINTEL Pro program and featured Mitchell and O'Neill's central roles, encompassed the planning of the raid and the raid itself and was designed, as the court found, to subvert and eliminate the Black Panther Party and its members, thereby suppressing a vital radical black political organization. And you mentioned the second conspiracy, which included the post-raid cover-up and legal harassment of the plaintiffs was, as the court further stated, intended to frustrate any redress the plaintiffs might seek, and more importantly, to conceal the true character of the pre-raid and raid activities of the defendants involved in the first conspiracy. Jeff, to what kind of legal harassments were the plaintiffs subjected? What kind of harassment did they uh, witness did they experience in the very, very long trial? Well, first of all, all of the survivors of, who were killed, the seven other people in the apartment, were all originally charged with attempted murder, including uh, Fred's fiance, who was eight and a half months pregnant uh, with their son, who was born posthumously. So they had to go to jail. Uh, they were, first of all, they were harassed and beaten up if they weren't shot and four of them were shot in the raid. Then they had to go to jail. They were handcuffed to their um, stretchers or to, to their beds. While, uh, Doc Satchel had several operations to remove the machine gun bullets uh, from his colon. So they had, first of all, the, 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 the shooting and, and the beating up. And then uh, once they, and then they were charged with attempted murder. And that was charge was dropped partly because the Chicago crime lab had wrongfully identified two shotgun shells as coming from a Panther weapon, when in fact it came from a police weapon. So they had no evidence that the Panthers fired, which was their whole story. Uh, so they had to survive that. Then to go in and we filed a lawsuit, which was dismissed originally because Judge Perry said our claims were scurrilous, not the actions of the police that we were describing, but that uh, somehow the, to, to charge them and to claim them what they were, a murder, uh, that was scurrilous. And so we had to go through a couple of years where the case was dismissed. They, of course, hid O'Neill and the entire FBI role for years. And one of the new documents that just came out, of course, the community and, and was, was outraged, even though I think they were divided on the Panthers, the murder of a young black leader in his bed at 4.30 in the morning was not acceptable. So there were a lot of demands for investigations. Um, so there was both a federal grand jury, which did a beautiful job of explaining that the uh, officers fired 90 shots and the only possible shot from a Panther was from a dying Mark Clark into the ceiling of the hallway. They had never disclosed the fact that it was the FBI who provided a floor plan. Then there was a state grand jury um, and they subpoenaed an FBI person. And these documents show the FBI person was told they could testify, assumedly about what happened in the apartment. But if they were asked any questions about the FBI role, they were to leave the grand jury and report to a particular person. In other words, never let the state grand jury know about the federal role. And quite frankly, if there had not been a burglary of the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, where COINTELPRO was discovered because it was a clandestine program, or if O'Neill had not been caught up a couple years later in a, in a murder homicide ring of drug dealers in Northern Indiana, where he and a Chicago policeman, Stanley Robinson, were killing drug dealers and shaking them down, when they got arrested, O'Neill said, well, I'm an informant. I, inform, I, I uh, penetrated his ring. And Stanley Robinson tried to say the same thing. Since O'Neill was a federal informant, Robinson got life imprisonment and O'Neill got continued to pay as, as an informant. So all this time, then the trial itself dragged on for 18 months. Iberia Hampton uh, had a job uh, at a factory. She had to get permission to come to court. By the end, by the closing argument, uh, her boss was saying, you can't come to court anymore. You've given up too many days. So it was a real burden on them 
to have to come to court. They could, didn't have to be in court, but of course we wanted the jury and, and the world to see them, to see the victims and, and to hear their testimony. So it dragged on uh, and it was 13 years from the date when we filed it to when they it finally got some compensation. Flint, uh, you write how, you and Jeff write how, in order to avoid judicial condemnation of their suppression of the FBI files, and it later turns out discovery of additional documentation of the FBI's role in the raid, the government joined with Cook County and the city of Chicago to settle our case for what was, at that time, the largest police violence settlement in federal court history, which must have felt like a huge victory, but to avoid judicial condemnation and the revelations of more documents, you settled for the largest police violence settlement in U.S. federal court history. Did you have any, any sense that those documents they were hiding existed? And knowing what you know now, Flint, would you have settled? Well, I guess that's a question that would be uh, very hard to answer. Uh, looking back, um, what what is it now? 1983. So uh, we're looking back 40 years, uh, and uh, it was a victory certainly. But Mrs. Hampton never forgot the fact that no one went to jail uh, for the murder of her son, and Mrs. Clark, Fanny Clark, who along with Mrs. Hampton came to the trial uh, almost every day for that 18 months, as did Bill Hampton, Fred Hampton's brother. All of them uh, were harassed both implicitly by having to sit through uh, the scandalous testimony uh, that was put on by the government and by the police uh, to slander again, to to re-victimize uh, uh, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, and the survivors. Um, but um, so it was a victory, but uh, it wasn't a complete victory by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I would liken it a bit to how you feel uh, after you run the marathon, because that 13-year trial was a marathon. And we finished, and we, we finished, and we won in the sense of getting that settlement. Uh, but the scars that uh, were left, not only the murders themselves, but the continuing st- scars and re-victimization of all of the people that were involved, uh, continued. Uh, do, if we had these documents, well, it's interesting because at, you read uh, a couple of excerpts from the Court of Appeals decision. As Jeff pointed out, the judge, Perry, was dead set against us. He called our complaint uh, scurrilous. At, during the trial, he th- threw both Jeff and me at, very, at, at different times into jail, into the federal lockup for contempt, for fighting for the truth. Uh, but we appealed, and the Seventh Circuit, the appellate court of the federal system here, uh, overturned uh, the, the case and, and, and wrote that very strong uh, opinion uh, in our favor. And so when we came back to uh, the, the, the lower court for a new trial, we had the cards rather than they had the cards. And those cards can, uh, uh, included the fact that the government had clearly covered up documents during the trial. And they also uh, included the fact that we were seeking to join Hoover and Sullivan and Moore and the higher ups in, in, in Washington in our lawsuit. Um, we never were allowed to do that, but we understood, uh, even though we didn't have these documents that we now have, that they had to be behind it uh, and that, that we wanted the blame to go all the way up to the top. But those cards that we had, um, along with other uh, important uh, pieces of evidence, are what compelled uh, the settlement. But uh, we, I, can't, I can't see, and Jeff can speak to this as well, given our resources, given all we put into the case, given what all of the Panther survivors had put into the case, all that what the, the, the families of, of Fred and Mark had put into the case for 13 years, I don't see how we would have been able to uh, sustain another uh, effort, another trial, even if we had these documents. 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but boy, we had, I mean, that was a 13 year marathon if there ever was one. And we, and we ran it uh, with no resources. We were up against uh, the county who was paying uh, their lawyers uh, at, a, at a high rate, uh, the city who was paying their private lawyers at a high rate, uh, government lawyers from, from Washington at the highest levels of the Justice Department, the local U.S. attorney. And it was basically Jeff and me and, and, and several uh, even younger lawyers in our office who were supporting us while we were making about 75 bucks a week. Um, and the lawyers on the other side were, were billing $50 an hour. Jeff, let me just ask you this before you follow up on uh, Flint's uh, response. Uh, how do you think if you could frame your response in this way, uh, how do you think we can get or the family members and the friends of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, how can they get more justice now? I think that's a, that's a good question. And I think one example is what has been done with the exposure and payment of judgments uh, in the John Burge torture series that people went beyond just compensating the victims, uh, which in itself was a tremendous task, exposing him. And this is some another thing that Flint and I did for years and Flint did for years longer. But finally, uh, there's a memorial. And the fact is that memorial about what John Burge did and it's taught in the high schools. There's never been an apology to the Hampton family. And unfortunately, Iberia passed away and Fred's brother and sister all within the last five years. But I think there should be a, a historical recognition of what was done, the complicity of the Chicago police, not only the police, but the Chicago laboratory, the investigative division, which was supposed to oversee the police, the same thing that we, we see today when uh, in the Laquan McDonald case, the collaboration, the code of silence, the cover up by the crime lab, often by the prosecutors, the mayor. Uh, there's never been a clear apology to Chicago or a recognition uh, of the role that they played. So I think, uh, I think something could be done around that and should be done just to be historically accurate and to acknowledge the, the role that the, 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 and some of the programs that the Panthers did and some of the changes they were tr trying to bring about. Uh, about equality, about unification of different groups, about basic rights. Uh, they fought mass uh, incarceration. They were talking about community control of police. So I think there could be things done and should be. Uh, and also I think Frank pointed out some of the difficulties, not only uh, after 18 months of arguing our case before a jury and while a jury was deliberating, Perry dismissed the case. He not only did that, he said costs against the plaintiffs were $100,000 and a $100,000 appeal bond. We had no resources. We got a black court reporter to let us uh, pay for the 33,000 page transcript on credit uh, so that we could even do an appeal. We had to get the appeal bond lifted and the cost lifted. We wouldn't even been able to do an appeal. And so, uh, there was this inequality of resources. There was also somewhat the reality that in Chicago, uh, there's a certain sentiment of, of people, we think, who say, well, if it's the Panthers versus the police, the police are, we're not going to decide uh, a judgment against the police. So you're going up against that. So despite all the evidence we had, uh, could we ever get a unanimous jury to award damages, even if we had another trial? even despite our evidence. So I think those are the things, and plus Flint mentioned, I mean, Doc Satchel's health was d deteriorating. He never recovered from those operations completely. He was waiting for some kind of relief. So that 13 years later, when he was offered a, a sum of money for, for compensation, it would have been hard to convince him. And I don't know that we should have to go, well, five more years, we might get you some money. So I think all of these things were would have made it difficult to go up against them. If we'd have had some of these documents that showed people at the top, we might have had more leverage. We might have gotten uh, a better settlement. We got might have had a uh, a better public exposure. But it's difficult to say that we could have or would have gone to a, another trial. Chuck, let me follow up a little bit, if I might, with what 
Jeff was talking about in, in, in the context of reparations. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, I was I, I had the honor and privilege of working with the movement that got uh, the reparations here in Chicago uh, that went far beyond any financial compensation. And I've also uh, had um, followed up on that in other cases in Little Rock. Uh, we got a memorial uh, and an apology uh, for a, uh, a victim of, of police uh, violence in in in. Uh, in New Orleans, there was uh, a major apology for the, the murders uh, on the bridge, the Danziger Bridge murders in, in wake of, of Katrina. And most recently in Greensboro, um, they were able, after 40 years of struggle and exposing the truth of the, of the police's involvement in allowing the Klan to massacre those five demonstrators in, in uh Greensboro, they finally got an official apology and recognition of the police involvement. Uh, and also, um, there will be scholarships in the name of the five um, uh, men and women who were murdered by the Klan and Nazis in 1979. So when Jeff first mentioned uh, something along the lines of, 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 of reparations or an apology or something beyond what we have uh, with regard to uh, official recognition of the assassination here, I thought, wow, it's 50 years later. But then I started to think about uh, Greensboro, and that's 40 years after the fact. But in Greensboro, there was a continuing movement for the truth. And of course, in Chicago, there was an intergenerational and interracial movement uh, for reparations. So I think that not only do we need to continue to uh, fight for and expose uh, the, the documents and the evidence that's, that's coming to light 50 years later, but there has to be a cry, a community cry, a, a movement cry uh, for the city and its mayor, uh, who has a kind of in a backhanded way acknowledged the assassination of Fred Hampton uh, in the report that she helped to author back in 2016. Uh, that they do something affirmative uh, to to acknowledge what what uh, the atrocity that was the assassination of Fred Hampton, the murder of Mark Clark, and and the uh, the brutality against all of the surviving Panthers. Jeff, uh, you and Flint also write that as historians who have extensively written and lectured on the assassination, we welcome this unexpected trove of new documents as further proof that the search for past truths continues into the future. We hope to assist Aaron Leonard, who has previously chronicled FBI surveillance and harassment of other 20th century leftists, in his efforts to compel the FBI to reveal the redactions in the Mitchell files, those of the FBI agent, and the pursuit of the secrets that will still remain ensconced in the bowels of the FBI files will continue. Jeff, in your opinion, why is the FBI far more concerned, seemingly, about the left than the right? Is the left far more of a danger, of a security threat, or do you think this isn't about left and right? It's more about black and white. Well, it's hard to differentiate there. Uh, Certainly with Hoover, uh, there was a great fear of all aspects of the black movement. Obviously, Dr. King uh, was a big target uh, of Hoover if not to assassinate him, to discredit him uh, publicly. And that new movie, MLK, uh, FBI, goes into that it, 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 you know, ex- extensively, how far they wanted to try to blackmail Dr. King. And we also learn, of course, that other people were also targets uh, of, of FBI harassment. Uh, yeah, I think the, F, the, the connection, I mean, we've seen it, in January, the connection between law enforcement and the right wing uh, is pretty clear, uh, depending on whether it's at the top or whether it's among other other down the line. So I think there is a, a, certainly a tendency to be fearful of uh, black movements, which uh, assumed, which are seeking to shift the unequal power arrangement to uh, uh, the idea of black power, black empowerment, black lives matter is a threat to many people in law enforcement, even though it's a totally legitimate claim. And I think for many of those people, uh, the racist claims of white people to return to a 
period where white supremacy was acknowledged in, in, in every form uh, fits with many people in law enforcement's view. So not surprisingly, we saw uh, on January since this, this collusion or this letting this pass. So I think uh, it is somewhat engendered in law enforcement as we know it. Uh, I think we should try to, when we find it, when we find like the Klan connected or in other places now, we find militia members, uh, right-wing militia people also are infiltrating police departments. Uh, we really have to root that out. Uh, and I, I think it is a risk. We have been speaking with attorneys Flint Taylor and Jeff Haas, co-authors of The Truth Out Story. New documents suggest J. Edgar Hoover was involved in Fred Hampton's murder. Flint is a founding member of the People's Law Office. Jeff is a founding partner as well at the People's Law Office. Flint is the author of the book The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, which was named one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell back in 2019. You can hear all of our interviews with Flint at our website right now. Go to thisishell.com and search on Flint's name and you can find all of our discussions with him. Jeff is the author of The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther. You can find out more about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.com. And as we do with all of our guests, we promise, Jeff, our final question for each of you is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Let us start with Flint. Flint, you write how, you and Jeff write how the search for historical truths about the government's repressive tactics and programs continues to be of crucial importance to this day. But shouldn't those of us who are opposed to the far right that stormed the Capitol be grateful for those repressive tactics and programs of the government in protecting us from far right violence? Why oppose a government crackdown on white supremacy, Flint? Well, if in fact uh, we could be assured that what they were really about was to root out white supremacy uh, in this country, then we might have a different approach to it. Although law enforcement doesn't ever seem to be the solution to any problem, uh, whether it be uh, poverty um, uh, or or um, white supremacy, uh, more law enforcement is not the answer. And we know from history that law enforcement is part and parcel of white supremacy. So, uh, in fact, we saw that at the Capitol uh, when when, uh, white supremacists were uh, in league with law enforcement, then law enforcement let it happen. So the response uh, that some people want, and and in the Democratic Party as well, unfortunately, um, that and some some left circles is yes, crack down on them. But what is really going to happen and is happening is cracking down on them will really turn out to be in all likelihood cracking down on the left, cracking down on the uh, on the black liberation movements, creating laws, using laws uh, that uh, uh, are designed to suppress the left. Uh, to to reinvigorate those laws, sedition laws, and that kind of thing that have been misapplied. Uh, And I think um, this happened in light of uh, 9-11 with the Patriot Act, and we really have to resist this happening again, uh, because in fact, we know what the real uh, uh, intent of law enforcement and white supremacy in link with law enforcement is. And I heard a very Uh, interesting quote by a a black uh, leader uh, who said, um, don't shoot the, um, let me see if I can get this straight now. Um, Don't shoot them. Don't shoot us. Just don't, we aren't asking for you to shoot them. We're just asking for you not to shoot us. That's the way it goes. And so I think that that can be looked at uh, and that and applied to this situation. Well, let me just follow up on that with you real quick, Flint, because you mentioned this. You said a misapplication of sedition, and we only have a couple of minutes, but what do you mean by the misapplication of sedition against the U.S. Capitol mob? Well, the sedition has been used against uh, the left and against independence movements, uh, uh, the Puerto Rican independence movement, for example. And whenever you hear that kind of 
conspiracy thought. You think about the conspiracy eight um, and, and you see how the conspiracy laws were used against a, a movement, uh, an interracial movement uh, in the wake of the Democratic National Convention. So you really don't want to encourage those kind of thought laws or those kind of uh, expression laws, those kind of laws that have historically been used against organizations on the left, organizations fighting for liberation and independence. Because once you uh, support those kind, kinds of uses in one context, really what's going to happen without a doubt is it's going to be used against you and the people uh, that are fighting uh, for freedom and, and liberation. And Jeff, our question from hell for you is you mentioned inequality of justice. And I think that's something that people don't recognize enough. How just can justice be when we have this inequality, not only of resources, but also of wealth inequality that may motivate the plaintiff to settle? Well, um, that's a big question. I don't have a a simple answer for it. Uh, I think what we saw the great, you know, the fact that these people were allowed to invade the Capitol, threaten people, possibly put people's lives in danger and walk out of there without uh, any arrests uh, and, and basically with a free pass, even uh, sort of the people in the high, you know, in the, in the Congress supporting some of them. And we compare that to how Black Lives Matter uh, protests against police killings were dealt with, with, police uh, tear gas, with police weaponry, with sound grenades, with all kinds of things, with drones. I was at Standing Rock and we saw uh, this massive law enforcement against people who were trying to stop a pipeline from destroying the water in the Missouri River and on the reservation. So I think one of the ways is to demilitarize the police. Um, And also as, you know, uh, like Flint said, the fear is that if we uh, responses to make past laws that make demonstrating more difficult, uh, they increase the penalties for protest. I think what we'll have is more law enforcement, more people arrested, less free First Amendment rights to assemble and talk and more surveillance. And that surveillance is going to be a lot of the left, not of the right. Jeff, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this morning. Thanks, Flint. It's always great to hear your voice. Everybody should go check out Flint and Jeff's work over at Truthout. New documents suggest J. Edgar Hoover was involved in Fred Hampton's murder. And to find out more about the People's Law Office, just go to peopleslawoffice.com. Thank you both so much for being on the show this week. Thank you, All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. So, Alex, have you decided what is this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell is what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? (laughs) Did you have anybody respond yet? Uh, Not yet. (laughs) There's going to be some good ones, though. i got to give people free reign to just uh, go wild on this. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and see all of our stuff right now when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On January 26, 1972, 49 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, a Yugoslav Airlines DC-9 en route from Copenhagen to Belgrade was at cruising altitude over East Germany when it exploded in midair from what was later determined to be a briefcase bomb in the luggage compartment. The plane broke into three big pieces and landed in a fiery crash just across the border inside of what was then Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. All 28 passengers and crew were killed with the exception of one woman found screaming amid the wreckage covered in blood, which is creepy. She was a 22-year-old Serbian flight attendant named Vesna Vulovic, 
who miraculously survived the terrifying fall from 33,000 feet by having been wedged between a food cart inside of a piece of the rear fuselage that hit a snow-covered hillside at an oblique angle, thus cushioning the impact. Rescuers did not expect Vulovich to stay alive much longer, but in the hospital she awoke from a coma ten days later, temporarily paralyzed with a broken skull, ribs, pelvis, legs, and vertebrae. It took her almost a year and a half to recover, and she walked with a limp for the rest of her life, but she never developed a fear of flying because she had no memory of the accident. So that's all I have to do to get rid of all my fears. Have my memory erased. The bombing was attributed to Croatian nationalists who claimed responsibility for it the day after the explosion, but no one was ever arrested. Vulovic became a celebrity in Eastern Europe and continued working in a desk job for the same airline until she was fired in 1990 for taking part in political demonstrations against the government of Slobodan Milosevic. And you'd think they'd cut her some slack for falling from 33,000 feet and surviving. She died in 2016 and still holds the Guinness World's record for the highest fall survived without a parachute, although I seriously doubt she was trying to set a record. In Rotten History, January 28th, 1591, 430 years ago this Thursday, a traditional healer and midwife named Agnes Sampson was executed for witchcraft at East Lothian, Scotland, not far from modern-day Edinburgh. The previous year, Scotland's King James VI had married the daughter of Denmark's King Frederick II. But the newlyweds returned from Denmark to Scotland had been delayed by stormy weather on the North Sea. The storms were blamed on witchcraft, and Agnes Sampson was one of several Scottish women arrested on the charge. So before a meteorology, weather was blamed on witchcraft. In prison, Agnes was stripped naked and shaved so that the king and his associates could search her body for a so-called devil's mark, which could have taken the form of a mole, a bump, a scar, or even an extra nipple. In other words, anything to support any wild claim that Agnes was a witch. After Sampson's accusers found a mark they deemed satisfactory evidence, they subjected her to horrific physical torture until she confessed to several acts of witchery, including that of casting a spell on the ocean by tying pieces of bone from a human corpse into the fur of a dead cat and then throwing the cat into the sea. So that's how it's done. I always wondered. For these crimes, she was finally garroted to death and then burned at the stake as if that was necessary. Agnes Sampson was one of several women and men executed for witchcraft in Scotland around that time. Their stories helped serve as inspiration not only for William Shakespeare's play Macbeth, but also for certain modern-day British and Scandinavian heavy metal bands. And no, I did not expect that rotten history to end with the words British and Scandinavian heavy metal bands. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who's on tomorrow's Tuesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, we're turning to Brazil with Brian Meir, who just has a new documentary out called Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's neoliberal agenda that is available now at uh, Redfish. You can look at our Facebook or Twitter page for links to that. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Flint Taylor for returning to This Is Hell. Thank you so much, Jeff Haas, for joining Flint. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing this week's Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.